It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The refugee crisis in the world today is the worst since the Second World War, says David Miliband. He leads the International Rescue Committee that helped millions of people last year fleeing disasters like war. The work of rescue is not just about them, the people we're helping. It's actually about us. It's about what we in the Western world stand for. It's about whether or not the values that we write on our, in our laws and in our constitutions mean anything. Today, Miliband describes solutions to the crisis, which he says is not impossible to solve. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion was held in June in Aspen, Colorado at the Aspen Ideas Festival. The refugee crisis has staggering numbers. One in every 110 people have been driven from their homes by conflict or persecution, says Miliband. Take South Sudan, where the PBS NewsHour reported last year millions are in need of humanitarian aid. Civil war is emptying huge swaths of South Sudan. The violence has uprooted 4 million people, including 2 million who fled to neighboring countries. Some countries, like Uganda, are leading on efforts to resettle refugees. Others, like the United States, are falling short, thinks Miliband. A year ago, the U.S. agreed to accept 45,000 refugees, the lowest number, he says, in the history of America's resettlement program. How can governments help people forced to leave their home countries? And what is our responsibility as citizens to help tackle the problem? Miliband, who wrote the book Rescue, Refugees and the Political Crisis of Our Time, speaks with Steve Clemens. Clemens is Washington editor-at-large of The Atlantic. Their conversation was held June 26th. Here's Clemens. I want to just share some breaking news that I just heard, which is very relevant to this morning. The Supreme Court ruled this morning in favor of President Donald Trump in the Trump versus Hawaii case on, on restricting travel. Uh, and said that there was no religious bias, that Donald Trump had uh, reasons for doing this. Uh, and I want to just start there, David, your reactions to this news from the Supreme Court that President Trump can uh, essentially unilaterally ban people coming to this country. This is slightly, it's both connected to refugees, but it's also connected to, to, to other normal movements of people. What's your reaction so to this? I think Supreme it's a Court really case? good place to start. First of all, it's nice to be called old and antiquated by no, Steve no. Uh, Clemens. <laughs> I, I feel, I'm feeling you're getting younger and I'm getting older uh, as the years go uh, by. Look, I think there's a really important point about this uh, judgment, and it may be a surprising one, but I say it to you as someone who lives and works in right. New York, uh, but who's not an American citizen. And that is that the, your constitution and the law is a great bulwark of a free society, and it needs to be defended at every stage. But there is a snare in legalizing policy problems. Mm. And my great fear about the judgment today is that it will be repeat, reported not as President Trump's executive order is constitutional. It will be reported as President Trump's executive order is right. And there's a very big difference between something which is something being constitutional and something being right. And my argument all along has been that the refugee policy as regards the um, arrival of refugees into the United States, the Trump administration inherited a situation where 90,000 refugees a year were resettled into the US. They, the president decreed that only 45,000 should come. In fact, only 21,000 are being allowed in this fiscal year. So there's been a three-quarters reduction in the number of refugees being allowed into the US. My argument has always been a policy argument that this is bad for America, bad for the refugees, and bad for the global effort to bring security and dignity to people whose lives are convulsed by war and uh, persecution. And the constitutional argument, while born of the best possible instinct, which is to defend people, leads to a situation where it's almost that if something is legal, it must be right. And my argument, my response today is, well, it may be legal, but that doesn't make it any more right, because it's founded on allegations about lack of security vetting, uh, lack of integration into society, criminal elements coming in, that is completely untrue. And I think there's a re I would plead with you, uh, those of you who are Americans, to remember that your duty as citizens is not just to stand up for what is legal, but to stand up for what is right. So what is, what is, the, what is the impact 
of this decision. One of the things I've been worried about is are the practices and behaviors, the norms we're showing today, um, inspiring similar actions by other governments? So when you see Viktor Orban uh, in Hungary, you see some of what's brewing in Austria, you see what's been going on with Italy. What, what do you think, I mean, and I understand your constitutional point, but what do you fear or see as the impact of this decision in now other governments feeling even more emboldened to walk away from refugee resettlement and you know, essentially the kind of moral obligations that you've been saying are so important in this world today when we have a refugee crisis probably uh, of, 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 of enormous historic proportions? Well, we are living through a refugee crisis of historic proportions. It's worth just having that as a bit of context right. because it would be one thing if countries were pulling back on their commitments to refugees in a context where there were fewer and fewer refugees. But we're living through the greatest refugee crisis since the Second World War. One in every 110 people on the planet has been driven from their homes by conflict or persecution. Uh, 25 million of them are refugees. That means that they've been driven from their homes and crossed a border into a neighboring state. 40 million of them are internally displaced people. That means they've been rendered homeless in their own countries but haven't yet crossed a border. And three million, three and a half million, are asylum seekers. That means they've crossed into a third country right. and are claiming uh, asylum. Now, uh, that, that, to my mind, constitutes a crisis because, not just because of its scale, but because of the fact that for 60% of refugees, they're out of their own countries for at least 20 years. And for 80%, they're out of their own countries for over 10 years. So you've got long-term displacement. Less than 2% of the world's refugees went home last year. So that's the context for thinking about your question. And the best way of um, answering your question is, is to say, well, when America does the right thing, what happens? And we have a very clear test case. We had a lot of quarrels with the Obama administration. But in September 2016, they announced an increase in refugee numbers and an increase in humanitarian aid. What happened? There was a 30% increase in the number of refugees being offered for resettlement by other countries and a large increase in the amount of humanitarian aid. Mm. And so obviously the obverse is a real danger, that every um, ne'er-do-well leader around the world is going to uh, take inspiration from the uh, decisions and the arguments that are being put forward, the allegations that are being put forward by the Trump administration. I think it's too simple to say that President Trump is the inspiration for uh, Prime Minister Orban because, in fact, Orban came first. The, um, some of the moves in Poland came before right. the election of uh, President Trump. But there's no question that there's a, what's sometimes called a populist, sometimes called a nativist um, strand of politics around the world that is speaking to economic dislocation, that is speaking to social uh, change, social and demographic change, and that finds uh, a ready uh, market. Now, that is an argument that has to be joined, and the only thing I'd say is it's not a new argument. I mean, I quote in my book, um, Einstein, Albert Einstein founded the International Rescue Committee in uh, the 1930s. Um, I've, I've learned in America, if you're British and you write a book, you never tell anyone. It's like, uh, you know, it's, now, having been in New York for four years, I'm like, yeah. I've written this book, you've all got to buy it, you know, it's, it's only uh, $15.99 and 20% of the proceeds go to the IRC, so I'm looking forward to uh, uh, many well, of you. Let me talk like, about this book. No, but hang on, yeah, just yeah, let, me, yeah. let me uh, make the point. So we were founded by Einstein in the 1930s, and then I quote, there's this incredibly moving letter that he wrote in 1941 to Eleanor Roosevelt. And the letter said, there is persecution of an unspeakable kind happening in Europe at the moment. And you must plead with your husband, the president, to allow Jews to be resettled from, um, from Europe to America. And you know that the answer was no. And so this is not a new Phenomenal. We've got to have a sense of historical perspective on this. And there's, an, if I may say so, an outstanding article that I read on the plane yesterday by Peter Beinart in the Atlantic um, this month or on the website, where he says, look, don't say simply we're living through the 1930s again. He, his argument is this is much closer to the era of Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover in the 1920s in the attacks on foreigners, the attacks on Italians in the 1920s and on Catholics, and the attacks on international institutions that happened in the 1920s. And of course, the 20s were the forerunner of the 
1930s, but we have to be historically accurate in how we understand the, the times we're living Fascinating, because I was going to ask you for back in the 1930s, so thank you for referencing Peter. I should have been more aware of his piece. But let me mention something about this book, Rescue Refugees in the Political Crisis of Our Time by David, which I, it's a very, very quick read, and it's a very, um, I, I have to say that as someone who has followed this, I've written about the refugee crisis, I've written about heroism during uh, the 1930s by American foundations that were trying to save some of the bright minds of the world and bring them over. The Rockefeller Foundation did this, which we can get into in a bit. Um, this is a deeply distressing book, and, and, and one of the things that drew me into it was your own personal story, uh, which I hadn't been aware of. I mean, I knew that you had parents who were refugees, but I knew, I mean, why don't you share with the audience why your stakes in this question are so large? Um, Steve actually said to me uh, beforehand, you know, the book, it's, it's surprisingly good. It's much less boring. It's much less boring than I thought it was going to be. So uh, I take that. When we do the reprint, I think we should put that. Steve Clemens says, yeah. much less boring than you might have expected. Yeah. Uh, the, I take that as high praise. Uh, it's a very rather British uh, type of praise. But uh, um, so I didn't really think about this very much growing up because, like many uh, refugee families, my parents didn't really talk very much about their refugee experience. My dad was a refugee from Belgium in 1940. He got the last boat out of Ostend um, with his father. Um, his father and um, uh, he uh, fled to the UK, leaving his mother and my aunt, his sister, in Belgium. Um, my mum spent the war in Poland. She lost her father um, and in the war. and. Um, uh, she survived thanks to the extraordinary courage of um, people who were willing to shield her and her sister. Um, so she came to the UK as a, not as an orphan, but on her own as a 12-year-old in 1946. And this wasn't um, a big part of our family uh, narrative, really. Uh, we, were we were shielded, really. We had the security of growing up in 60s, 70s, 80s, United Kingdom, relatively middle class. and. Uh, um, it's only been more recently, and I think when I took on this job, I realized that in a small way I was sort of closing a circle by trying to help people who are going through uh, similar trauma, albeit in different political context and different religion in many uh, cases. And I think that um, the, 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 the most important thing for me is that this work of rescue, that when I um, was appointed to run the International Rescue Committee, I said, look, um, there's a global challenge to how you do some of the most difficult things. How do you get medical aid into Syria? How do you educate girls in Afghanistan? How do you uh, tackle sexual violence in Congo? I said that I thought that the IRC um, had a special role as an organization that's focused on families that are, whose lives are traumatized or shattered by conflict and persecution. We're not a generalized anti-poverty agency. We work in 40 countries. We've got 17,000 staff in 200 field sites. And we're, we're dedicated to people whose lives are shattered by uh, conflict. I said there was a distinctive role for the IRC, but what I didn't realize is that the work of rescue is not just about them, the people who are, we're helping. It's actually about us. It's about what we in the Western world stand for. It's about whether or not the values that we write on our, in our laws and in our constitutions mean anything. Uh, it's whether or not uh, we are willing to uh, assert that the values that we live by are actually not Western values, but universal values. And they're embodied in UN conventions on human rights that are often honored in the breach rather than the observance. And I think that the relatively benign political climate of 2013, 2014 blinded me, made, rendered a complacency about the fact that the um, moral ground on which the Western world stands is under challenge, not just from the outside, but it's under challenge from within. And I think it's really important that I'm able to try and speak to the fact that the, the rescue is not just uh, something about them, it's about us. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Today's conversation is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Another speaker from the festival is working to fight hate and extremism in the United States. Christian Picciolini was a leader in the white supremacist skinhead movement. He says he started to become radicalized the day he was born. I don't think that ideology and dogma are the radicalizing factors. I think they're just the final permission slip that gives people mm. a reason and a license to do and act out on whatever they're angry about. 
In our special offstage podcast episode, Picciolini describes how compassion from the people he thought he hated helped him leave the skinheads. Now he helps others disengage from hate groups. Look for the episode, Offstage, Leaving Hate Behind, in our lineup. You can find us on most podcast players, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Back to our featured talk. Here's Steve Clemens. You know, one of the things your book did for me, and I, and I, I, again, I, I don't think that I'm someone that's normally like this, but I, when I talk about this, and you talk about the scale, the numbers, you know, the people that are lost in, in uh, trying to get across the Mediterranean, you know, th- a minimum 3,000 people a year die or disappear. Um, you you uh, helped uh, this past year more than 26 million people. The scale and number is so large that it almost becomes sterile in the way we talk about it. And it has been these images of the young uh, dead boy on the beach, or uh, I remember in a film some of you may have seen called The Final Year, which was about Barack Obama, it essentially focused in on John Kerry, Ben Rhodes, and Samantha Power uh, in the last year in office. And there's a scene in there which is very compelling where Samantha Power at the UN has this virtual reality uh, uh, set where someone has gone into a refugee camp and she's trying to get the Saudi ambassador to go and do the same thing and listen to it. And I'm just interested in what you've learned as your experience when you're in an audience like this of helping people to understand the human dimensions of it beyond the vast scale of numbers. Well, the biggest challenge we face is not the scale of the problem. Mm. The biggest challenge we face is the fact that too many people look at the scale of the problem and think it's insoluble. That's the biggest mountain. And it's pretty galling to have someone in New York say to you, as he did, I could give you a billion dollars and you wouldn't solve the problem, which is what someone said to me. And my reply was, well, if you gave us a billion dollars, we could make a hell of a lot of people's lives better. And I think that that sense of impotence or um, dispossession is very, very much related to the dehumanization that has gone on. Some of that dehumanization comes from the scale, but some of the dehumanization also comes from political rhetoric. And when people are described as a flood, when they're described as a Trojan horse, uh, that is dehumanizing. And part of my job, I think, is as an NGO leader, um, is to say that making the world better one life at a time is what those of us who are citizens should try and do, without forgetting the bigger picture. If you're in government, you focus on the big picture and the danger is you lose sight of the people. If you're in an NGO, you have to focus on the people, the danger is that you lose sight of the big picture. What I can say to you through through the uh, book and through talks like this, is that actually, this is a manageable problem, not an unmanageable problem. If you want proof of that, look at some of the poorest countries in the world who are setting an example to the richest countries in the world. I mean, Bangladesh has had 700,000 people arrive in the last six months, and it has, its government, by the way, the annual average income in Bangladesh is $1,700 a year per person. The government of Bangladesh has not said it's got to build a wall to stop people coming in. Uh, Uganda uh, is a country with an annual average income of about $962 per person per year. It's had a million people arrive from South Sudan, and it, it would no more occur to them to build a wall to stop people coming in than it would to fly to the moon. Uh, the examples that are given from those countries are a telling rebuke to those in Europe or America who says, we've got a refugee crisis. No. America has 1% of the world's refugees. Europe has 6% of the world's refugees. Uh, Europe is the world's largest, richest single market, 560 million people, uh, until the UK leaves, obviously, but uh, we'll come to that, hopefully, uh, in the course of this discussion as well. Um, Europe is the world's largest, richest single market. Um, it had one and a half million refugees arrive in, uh, or asylum seekers arrive in 2015, 2016. That is not a European crisis. There's a Mediterranean crisis. There's a Middle Eastern crisis. If you're Lebanon with a population of four and a half million, 1.2 million Syrians arriving, that's a crisis. If you're Jordan, the second closest ally of the United exactly. States in the Middle East, and you're a population of seven million and you have 650,000 registered refugees arriving, and your debt to GDP ratio goes up to 94% from 50%, and you've got a dollar peg, and you've got an austerity program from the IMF, that's a crisis. But how dare we say that for 10,000 or 100,000 people arriving, you can constitute a crisis in the richest parts of the world? That's a political 
statement, not a, not, a, not a statement of fact. At the Atlantic, we're storytellers, and I'm always interested in the question, if you were to write a story today and kind of highlight some of the most villainous governments in this story and some of the most heroic governments in your story, who would they be? Well, I always think about heroic people. It's, if you're in government, you've got to be careful calling yourself a hero. I mean, it's, uh, doing the right thing is not heroic. Uh, doing the right thing is, um, if you're in government, is actually exercising power for, what, for the purposes that it's... Um, I mean, the people who, you know, the, the, the village in Belgium, the Catholic village in Belgium that said to my aunt and my um, grandmother in 1942 when they arrived and said, um, we've been summoned to Brussels railway station uh, and we don't think it's good that we go there, will you take us in? That Catholic family who welcomed in my uh, aunt and my grandmother, that's heroic because they're putting their own lives on the line in, a, in an incredibly an incredible way. But I do think that there are governments that are doing the right thing. And it's a surprising one because the government of Uganda, for example, is in the news for issues in respect of gay rights where it has a very repressive attitude. But if you're a refugee in Uganda, you get a plot of land, you get the right to work, your kids go into um, services, and you're given freedom of movement across the whole country. Surprise, surprise, in Kampala in 2014 when they did a study, 90% of refugees are off humanitarian aid because they're earning their own living. Mm. And so the, the heroes, I went to um, Kampala and I met a South Sudanese woman who told me an unspeakable story about her relatives being killed in front of her, sliced up, she said, in front of her. Um, she fled to uh, Uganda. Um, we gave her a business loan. She set up a banana ripening business where she bought bananas for a, the equivalent of a dollar and sold them for a dollar fifty six weeks later. She rented a little um, shack from us to, to ripen the bananas. She then said, do you know what I did with the money? And I said, no. She said, I uh, paid the school fees of my daughter. And I said, well, she said, do you want to meet my daughter? I said, of course. And where's your daughter? I said, well, she's, she's sitting here. Mm -hmm. So we went and met the daughter. The daughter is studying for a Master of Public Health at the University of Kampala. And when I asked the daughter, what do you want to do when you qualify? She said, I want to go back to South Sudan to improve the healthcare system in South Sudan. That is doing the right thing. The woman, in some ways, was uh, heroic. But the government of, Kampa uh, government of Uganda are doing the right thing, which is, um, uh, I think it is, there are choices in politics where you've got a trade-off between uh, popularity and doing the right thing. And there are also places where doing the right thing is costly. But actually, th this should be a win-win. And I say this to you as Americans, <coughs> refugees who come here are more likely to be in work than the average American. Right. They're going to be taxpayers, not welfare recipients. They actually pay back their car loans in greater proportion than the rest of uh, the United States. Levels of criminality are below the American average. So it's not like we're asking you to offer charity to people who are going to become an injury to your country. We're asking you to do the right thing for people who are actually going to be an asset to your uh, country. And so I think that um, while I wouldn't call that heroic, I would call that um, appropriate, really. Villains? Well, um, that's a tempting uh, list. I mean, I think that we've made it a rule. I mean, it's obviously a very toxic political environment in the US at the moment. And we've made it an absolute rule that we don't, to use a so what you call soccer, what I call football, um, I always say to people, play the ball, not the man. In other words, play the policy, not the personality. So we don't produce lists of villains, starting with someone you might guess, um, because that is not our role. We are uh, an, a service delivery agency that can speak to our understanding of the needs of the people who we are helping around the world and here. And so when we say it's wrong for um, the administration to propose a 30% cut in humanitarian aid funding, or when we say it's wrong for the administration to cut by three quarters the number of refugees who are allowed into the US, just in parentheses, there are 50,000 Iraqis who've worked for your government as translators of the military or translators of diplomats who've applied to come here under something called, it was called the Special Immigrant Visa Program, it's now called the P2 Visa Program. This fiscal year, 36 of those people have been allowed to come to the United States, even though they put their lives on the line for you and your government. Um, we don't say about that uh, nasty things about the president. We say that the policies are wrong. And so I think it's important as a non-partisan charity that we, we speak to what we know, which is the policy, rather than to the, to the personality.
So we don't do lists of villains. Another dimension of your uh, very compelling book, sobering book, um, that, that I had thought about it, read about, but never connected to this, is that when you kind of look at what we're dealing with in terms of war-related and crisis-related uh, refugees and people that are displaced, which are at historic, historic levels since, since World War II, um, you, you deal with other issues that I had, climate refugees, and it also raises the other question as we've been focused on Asia, what might have happened uh, perhaps and what may still happen if you listen to what I think about this mess we have with North Korea. You have other potential hotspots that could uh, all of a sudden come online, and I'm interested in how you look at that. I mean, you're, you're not only head of the international rescue community, you were, you were British foreign minister. You, you know the terrain and where the tectonic points are, and I, I, I guess I want to know what's happening on the climate refugee front, but also do you worry about the load just getting such at a point where we end up unable to deal with all of these? You just end up with chaos well, I, and The way I, I've learned this, I mean, obviously when I took on this job four years ago, I, I understood that political crisis begets humanitarian crisis. I mean, right. what is a refugee crisis other than the failure of politics? What is a war other than the failure of politics? So I understood that political crisis causes humanitarian crisis. What I now understand is that untended humanitarian crisis causes political instability. I mean, at some level, the demonstrations in Jordan or the convulsions in Europe reflect an untended humanitarian uh, crisis. And I think there is a crisis of diplomacy. That's why the 1920s parallel is so striking. Um, where are the all-night sessions of the UN Security Council on Yemen? I've got 400, uh, 400 people working in Yemen. 40 of, we've got 40 staff in Hodeida City today. Um, where is the all-night session? Where is the all-night session on South Sudan? South Sudan is a country of 11 million people. It's got 1.5 million refugees who've spilled into neighboring states. There is a crisis of diplomacy, which is somehow um, masked or covered by the idea that these are complex problems far away of which we know nothing and which we can't resolve, which was a 1930s um, phenomenon. And it really worries me. That's why, in a way, 30% cut in humanitarian aid, where well, you can understand why I'm worried about that proposed, 30% cut in, in the number of diplomats. I mean, that is a retreat from global problem solving. That is precisely the wrong lesson of the traumas of the last 15 years of foreign uh, policy. And that's an issue for Europe. Um, you know, a really good counterexample, we, one of the big things we did in 2008 was um, bring a resolution to the Kosovo crisis. Um, we, didn't, we haven't had a repeat of the 1990s uh, flow of refugees because there's relative, I mean, there's re people are protesting, you know, the uh, Kosovo refugees are playing for Switzerland in the World Cup and protesting about the status of Kosovo through when they score goals in the World Cup. There, there isn't a, a, a crisis confrontation there. And if you look at um, near to home, uh, it's extraordinary to me that there's no coverage of this. There's one and a half million refugees from Venezuela. We've had to set up shop in Colombia. Mm. Uh, we're setting up in El Salvador. There's 600,000 refugees from Venezuela have gone to wow. Colombia, and which, is just, which has got a fragile piece of its own. And so I think that the crisis of diplomacy is something that should really be a, uh, a concern because the, this, the, the embrace of so-called bilateralism, the retreat from multilateral institutions, is weakening those institutions at a time when uh, we can't afford them to be weakened. It's Aspen Ideas to go. Did you catch last week's bonus episode? We featured former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright talking about her latest book, Fascism, A Warning. She calls fascism a process for gaining and keeping power. The only person that I flat out call a fascist in the book is Kim Jong-un, the, the North Korean, yeah. uh, because that is absolute power over people in a way using terror and force against them. With populist movements on the rise, she thinks we should understand what fascism is and how we can fight it. Find the episode in our archive on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, NPR One, and your favorite podcast player. Here's the rest of today's show. Steve Clemens. David, I know you meet lots of different groups. You have you know, a vast array of donors and participants. I wish. We, want, would, we want more. Yeah, Don't worry. Bit, uh, yeah, why uh, do you think I'm here? You can make, you can make uh, your pitch here. Um, and, and, but what, what's great when you go back in American history, I remember, uh, and, and again, you highlight this in, in your, your book, 
about the Vietnamese boat people and the number of Vietnamese refugees that came to the United States after the Vietnam War. And when you look at them today, extraordinary contributions uh, to U.S. society, um, economically, intellectually, across the board. And many of the, the platform for many of those that came through were largely conservative faith groups. And I'm just wondering where the conservative faith groups that have played such an important role in uh, going on missions in Africa, uh, hosting many of the Sudanese refugees, but also the Vietnamese refugees in the United States, where is the memory of that in this country? Is there just an amnesia? Is it turned off? Or is it there and I'm not seeing it? Well, I think that um, one of the most moving um, conversations I've had recently was in, I was in San Francisco speaking at a forum a bit like this, and nothing's quite like Aspen, but, uh, um, and, a, and a Vietnamese uh, woman came up to me and she said, you know, my parents were refugees and they never spoke about it. They, um, they felt that they would be less assimilated if they talked about being refugees. And I've never spoken about it, she says, and I think we've really caused a lot of the problems we've got today by not calling out our own passage to America. And she said, if I've learned one thing of the last year or two, it's that I'm gonna speak up about being a Vietnamese refugee, not just being Vietnamese, but being a Vietnamese refugee. And the, there's been a complacency. When I arrived here, people said, look, we've got a bipartisan support for uh, refugee resettlement. Ronald Reagan right. resettled more refugees than anyone else, 200,000, 220,000 a year in the early 1980s. And obviously that was complacent and wrong uh, to believe that. Um, there's been some very strong um, statements from organizations like World Vision that have sp spoken out about this. Um, some of the, um, uh, some of their supporters have spoken out uh, and, trying, and, and said, look, we, this is our issue uh, as well, but uh, there's a lot of competition for space at the moment. Right. There's a lot of issues out there that are in play. And uh, frankly, I think there's a slow and quiet strangulation of the re refugee resettlement um, uh, program in the, in the US. I mean, the, the, the reduction from 90,000 to 21,000 is precipitous. And uh, the, 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 the effective strangulation of the SIV program, the special immigrant visas for Afghans and uh, Iraqis who've, who've put their lives on the line for you is, is going on as well. And there's so much else in the news that I think that there's, there's a real danger to, for these programs. I think there's also the parallel point that there's so much flux around that so much tumult that the international aid that America does, which is successful, is, is sort of lost in the... Um, lost in the, in, the, in the narrative. And so, actually, Europe now spends more on humanitarian aid internationally than the U.S. Now, that Europe is a collection of countries, obviously, but still, the, the, the European Union can now say, look, European countries now spend more on international aid than the U.S., which is an unprecedented uh, situation. And so I feel that that is born of the sense that the problem is so big that we can't resolve it. There's a, there's a re I think there's a really telling phrase that I hope all of you here think about. Uh, which the Pope went to Lampedusa in 2014. This is the island um, off Italy where migrant, uh, where, where, the, where asylum seekers first land. And he said, the world is suffering from the globalization of indifference, mm. which is a, an accusation, not just, an, not just sure. a statement. And I always say to people, I don't know if you're allowed to argue with the Pope, but I think that there is a, um, that there's a, 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 not a global, I don't see indifference. What I see is um, a sense that the problems are insoluble, and that's why I really want to get across to you that if you are, if you become a supporter of the IRC or other charities, uh, you will be um, making a difference. And uh, in a way, that word indifference—it's not that people are indifferent in mentally; it's they worry that they can't make a difference. And my point is that we need the globalization of making a difference. And certainly. Um, if you think about the kind of um, stories I've told you about the people we're helping, that's a hell of a difference. Right. And it adds up. That's how you end up helping 27 million people in, in a year. I have two quick questions, and I want to go to all of you. Um, and, and this may sound unfair, but it is something raging in the United States right now, which is a debate on civility and how to respond to this. And it was the crisis of, of children being taken away from their parents that created something different. It seems to be at least a, the tipping point of the day where a much larger number of people were so offended by this. And we, of course, had the incident where a restaurateur at Little Hen would not seat Sarah Sanders or ask her to leave, she and her family. Um, and some are applauding this, and some are saying this is not American, that this is not civility. I'm interested in you as a tactician, because you know, I remember when you were, you were foreign minister, you weren't asking for people to go protest, but protesting is part of raising visibility for things. Marches, visibility, how do you feel 
Uh, if you had a restaurant, would you seat Sarah Sanders? Well, on I think camera? the, the uh, so you wouldn't want you wouldn't she, she wouldn't be choosing my cooking. I tell you that. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you that for starters. What I think is really important in a febrile political climate is that you don't lead to a situation where there's a loss of focus on the real victims. Mm. Right. Uh, in politics, there's always politicians competing to say that they're the victim, and the victims in this extraordinary, disgraceful imbroglio on the southern border, the victims are the children and the families. Right. And anything which takes away from their situation worries me. And in the modern media age, anything can become a distraction. And it is crushing to me. I mean, we do a bit of work for children who are fostered um, uh, when they arrive in America unaccompanied, so it's not, not related, not, um, not, as, not as part of the backwash of last week's incidents. Um, but, uh, so we know a bit about what's going on, and we know a bit about what's going on in El Salvador and uh, in the um, triangle in, in Latin America. And uh, for America to be a country which is, not, which is promoting family reunification abroad, which we do through family right. tracing, we do a, a lot of our work is actually reuniting families. For America to be funding family reunification abroad but sponsoring family disunification at home is an appalling commentary on how politics and policy has uh, changed. And it will give license to people around the world to say, well, that, that's okay. And it's not right, okay. Right. And I think that what's really important in thinking about your duties as citizens is to make sure that nothing diverts from the real victims of this, who are children who are six right. or nine months old, who uh, are no longer with their parents, and who have no prospect of getting closer to their parents. Another, another uh, staggering statistic that I learned from you is that um, over half of displaced children that are school age are not getting any schooling, not in any program whatsoever. And I know you just re uh, won a $100 million prize, uh, IRC and Sesame Street um, productions from the MacArthur Foundation, as I understand it. What are you doing with that $100 million? Why is it so important? How are you trying to push the needle on that issue? So the trauma that you've heard people talking about in the southern border, the right. trauma of displacement, um, the trauma of children who see dead bodies and people being killed. That's called toxic stress. Mm. And it is a flood of hormones to the front of the brain, and it can affect you for life. Uh, the good news is that actually if you get the right kind of nurture, social and emotional support, you can reverse the effects of toxic stress. And we've got the brain science to prove it, and in the partnership with Sesame and New York University, we developed a program that will uh, tackle toxic stress among refugee and um, IDP, internally displaced children in the Middle East from zero to eight years old. It's called Sesame Seeds. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's a $50 million for us, $50 million for a Sesame uh, workshop. Mm. And uh, so it's so $10 million a year. So $100 million sounds like a lot of money, but actually when you break it down, it's $10 million a year for each organization. Um, we're happy to have anyone match that because we've got plenty of other $100 million programs up our, uh, up our sleeve, honestly. Um, and I think it's a really exciting program because what it says is that we can invest in breaking the cycle of disadvantage and degradation and division that affects these uh, children. I've got in my wall in uh, New York a picture that was drawn by an 11-year-old Nigerian girl in northeast Nigeria of a beautiful Nigerian woman. And I asked the teacher in our healing classrooms, which is essentially what we'll be delivering in the Middle East, I said to the teacher, what's the story of this girl? And, she, and to cut a long story short, they said, look, when she arrived at, at our classroom um, 11 weeks ago, all she could draw were dead bodies and soldiers. And now she's drawing a beautiful Nigerian woman. And she's essentially using art therapy to help tackle toxic stress. And that is gonna change that girl's, give the, that girl the chance to change her life. And that's what we are trying to do in our program with, funded by MacArthur with the um, Sesame Workshop. So uh, the big message, I think, is that this, is, this crisis is manageable, not insoluble, and that we all have a personal moral duty to help make it so. Let me open up the floor to questions in, uh, right here. Thank you, David. My question is, how relevant is the fact that the rise of nationalist far-right governments in Europe has been created by the Syrian refugee crisis of moving over a million refugees into Europe, and how, how correlated are those from your perspective? And secondly, what can advocacy organizations do to 
disentangle the question of crime and poverty and all of the issues right. that they feel are associated with the in influx of these refugees and the actual work ethic that they have and what the, the actual results have been on the ground. And can I piggyback, it's crime, poverty, and, and, the, and, and terrorism that, that is often exploited. And you, your your uh, uh, ancestors were from Belgium, and Belgium has been one of the places where this has also been used politically. So. So look, the, the, the truth is um, it's been exploited. And there's three or four points that one has to understand. First of all, Europe's biggest problem is not that one and a half million people arrived. Europe's biggest problem is that it had ignored the refugee crisis in 2013 and 2014. Despite the Pope going to Lampedusa, in 2015, when one and a half million people arrived, there was no European package ready to address that. And we all know in policy that if you're playing catch up, you're losing. Right. So the biggest thing to understand is Europe has been scrambling to catch up. If it had been put in place proper entry and exit systems, proper systems for distributing refugees and immigrants around the, around the uh, continent while their cases were being developed, we wouldn't be in this mess. Secondly, we're living in the shadow of the global financial crisis. I mean, remember, Italy, um, Greece, Spain, Portugal have suffered monumental losses in right. GDP per head and income per head. Uh, un youth unemployment in Spain, I think, is still above 50%. Um, so there's an economic backdrop to this that is uh, real. Thirdly, um, there's no question that European governments are paying the price of a failure to distinguish between refugees and economic immigrants. And I think it's really important that we understand that 65 million refugees and internally displaced, 25 million refugees in total, 3 million asylum seekers. There are 250 million people crossing borders at the moment for economic reasons. And it's not inhumane it's not wrong to say that there's a different moral and legal obligation some, to the baker from Damascus who's bombed out of his bakery by his own government, or the girl in northeast Nigeria who's chased from her home by Boko Haram. There's a different moral and legal obligation to that person than there is to someone who's seeking to move across a border for a better life. It's not that one is good and the other is bad. They're different, and they carry different legal and moral obligations. The key to being able to put those different obligations into practice is processing cases quickly. You've got to be able to have an assessment of the individual case. And Germany is now, Peter Wittig is here, he's the German ambassador. Um, it, the, the, the time it's taking the German authorities to, um, I'm not saying that because you've got to answer all the questions, Peter, uh, uh, about it, but Germany is now processing eight to 10 weeks to get an asylum claim processed. In the United States, it's now 286 days. There's no excuse for that. In Greece, there are people who've been waiting on the island of Lesbos for three years to have their case processed. And so Europe has made its own position difficult. Final point is, there's no question that those three factors have all been, that those confusions, those uh, latenesses are being exploited in, a, in an effective way. But here's the word that is critical, and I bring my Brexit um, trauma to bear on this. And the key word is control. If the population thinks that the government is in control of a situation, then it might think the government is right, it might think the government is wrong, it's not gonna tip over the apple cart. If, a thing, if, the government thinks, if the people think the government's not got control of a situation, then you've got a problem. And I think that's where there is a link to the US debate about your responsibilities to refugees versus your responsibilities to the 11 million un undocumented. Wonderful talk. Uh, you didn't bring religion at all, or if I missed it. So, the crisis, I'm just going to go away from Europe and the United States for a minute, just to bring you. But just so, make it very brief. We just have a few minutes. So. Just the, the problem in Burma to Bangladesh to India is religious. Right. Uh, the problem in South Sudan is also religious. You know, North being predominantly Muslim, South being Christian. Right. So you didn't bring it to change dynamics. It. Yep. You're, yep. you're absolutely Thank right you. to raise it. Look, three causes of the uh, current refugee crisis. Um, the fourth will be climate, but it's not re yet really the, the driver. One, weak states that are unable to meet mm -hmm. the, their obligations to their own citizens. Two, a weak and divided international order that has lost the capacity to problem solve. Third, very difficult to talk about, uh, but division and tumult within parts of the Islamic world. I mean, that's a significant point that we were founded by Einstein to rescue Jews from Europe. 45% of our clients today are Muslims. We're a secular organization, and it's absolutely right there to do so because we meet people on the basis of need. But actually, South Sudan is not a good example because South Sudan is not a religious uh, conflict. It's an example that is ethnic, if anything, rather than uh, religious. But Afghanistan, 
um, the, 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 the Yemen, uh, that the, there are religious components, but they're interwoven with issues of power, resources, engagement with the outside uh, world. And so uh, there, is a, the, 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 there is a difficult to talk about, but important element, uh, driver in this, which is, uh, has a religious basis. Are you uh, proud or ashamed of the British government in all of this? I'm proud of the international aid program, where we spend 0.7% of our national income on aid. You spend 0.17%. I'm ashamed that while the Cameron government should have pledged to take 3,000 unaccompanied children um, who are refugees, the Theresa May's government um, uh, threw away that commitment. So in Britain, no one understands this in America, in Britain we would call that a curate's egg. A curate's egg is half good and half bad. Right here in front. Hi, Elif uh, Gökçidem. I have an initiative called Empathy Building Through Museums. And my question is, I'm very interested in the moment when a leader faces a choice to do the right thing. Right. What, what is the one quality that you would think that individuals should have to make the right choice at any given uh, challenge? Very cosmic question. So, uh, important. Uh, I think that if I think about leaders who I've seen have been successful, and if I think about some of the right decisions and the wrong decisions I've made myself, um, there's a, the, the defining quality is the ability to know the difference between knowing your own mind and defining your own reality. Really good decision makers know their own mind. They know their values, uh, they know themselves, uh, but they don't define their own reality, which means if you define your own reality, you choose your own facts and you create your own internal logic. And if you're, the way to avoid defining your own reality is to listen to people who you don't agree with as well as listening to people who you do agree with. And if you maintain that balance, knowing your own mind but not defining your own reality, you've got more chance of making the right decision. And above all, you've got a chance of making a decision. You see, the greatest sin in leadership is not to get something wrong. We all get things wrong. The great sin in leadership is to make a hypocritical decision where you say one thing and you do another. And if you remember that you mustn't define your own reality, you've just got to know your own mind, you're more likely to avoid that trap. Have you met Donald Trump? I haven't met Donald Trump, no. What's the senior, most senior member of the Trump administration you've talked to? Um, I think it's probably better that I don't say, because I've had private meetings with um, some of them, and uh, I asked well, to meet me, them, me, so, them so privately. Let me, and, uh, let me just frame this as a moment. I want to come back to you. I'm looking at Bob Steele now as I think about it. You know, Bob, you, you know, not only in helping to run uh, Aspen beautifully, but New York City. Donald Trump's from New York City. So many of the folks who've been around New York City, the story of New York City uh, is one of immigrants uh, who've created uh, an extraordinary place in the world. I was in New Orleans the other day, and I saw this beautiful statue in a park I was walking. Some of you may know it as a tribute to immigrants. Um, I'm just, I, I, I guess it just rattles me, like with, with um, President Trump or with people here, everyone has connected to an immigrant story. What, when you meet someone senior, person X in the Trump administration, do they have any uh, facility, any connection to this important part of the American ethic? Uh, some of them do. But um, some of them don't. Some of them do. And... Uh... <laughs> I think that there's also um, a very deep and very conflicted argument about whether what it means to say that this country is based on an idea. Hmm. And that is contested in a way that it hasn't been for a very long time. That idea being that it is a place where people come uh, and find haven and make a contribution irrespective of race or religion or region that they uh, come from. And when the president said he didn't want America to be a migrant camp, I rather raised my eyebrows since, um, if not camp, it's certainly been an immigrant nation. And I think that that really relates to, I suppose, the last thing I'd like to say to you, because it's really important that you go away from here thinking not just that I say that this crisis is manageable, but that you're able to do something about it. If you uh, live in America, you or your family can buddy, volunteer with refugees who have arrived or are arriving and help them figure out the way the city or the town that you live in works and make a difference for them there. Uh, if you uh, are an employer, you can make sure that refugees get a chance to have job interviews and get a chance to get a job. Because I tell you, there's no better job training program than having to fend for your life, learn who to trust, figure out how to um, make your way, and no greater test of determination and 
uh, tenacity. Uh, since I've been in New York for four years, if you have financial ability, please give your some of your finances to organizations like the IRC that can go and make a difference around the world. Tell them about uh, your the partnership world. with WeWork. So uh, WeWork, uh, I visited them in Denver yesterday. Uh, WeWork is the office services company, 200 uh, refugees they've taken on in the last uh, three or four years, um, giving them a chance to get onto the employment uh, ladder. Uh, as I say, if you've got finance, don't interrupt me on that point. That's the, uh, uh, if you've got uh, finance, please support the IRC. But there's one thing that's even more Im important, which I think uh, is really more significant. Um, if you're a citizen, use your voice, uh, because voices matter. I'm struck by how many congressmen and women say to me, well, it does matter whether or not I get calls about an issue. I mean, I don't know, I don't think there have been enough calls about the fact that America has only offered 36 places to Iraqis who, of the 50,000 who worked for, who put their lives on the line for Iraq. So please use your voice because it's your country and this remains the most, the, the benchmark power in the world today. And it's a benchmark power both for the Western world, the Western world doesn't exist without American leadership, and it's a benchmark power for the emerging countries who will define their own strategies on the basis of what you do. If you withdraw and pull out, they'll move in. If you offer partnership, they will partner. If you start a trade war, they'll engage in a trade war. And so it's really important the kind of choices that you make. And in the end, countries can only make choices through a national conversation. We're having a national conversation in the UK at the moment, which is a traumatic and a bloody national conversation that's going to go on for the next 10 years. Um, if we go ahead with this Brexit um, departure. But your country's in the midst of an, in, of an enormous need uh, for a national conversation. If one thing worries me even more than the refugee crisis, it's the lack of a national conversation that has the integrity to be able to listen as well as to talk. And that's something that I think is really important, not just for this country's future, not just important for the people that we're serving, but actually for kind of the trends that are going to define the globe in the years ahead. Some of you may now understand why, um, understand why I've said in the past what a lousy deployment of talent it would have been if David had ended up as British Prime Minister instead <laughs> of uh, running the International Rescue Team. Ladies and gentlemen, David Delabert. Thank you. David Miliband is President and CEO of the International Rescue Committee. Previously, he served as Foreign Secretary for the United Kingdom from 2007 to 2010. He was also a Member of Parliament. Steve Clemens writes for The Atlantic and founded the American Strategy Program at the New America Foundation. Their conversation was held June 26th at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.